If you're looking at the kind of consumer traction coming into the venue again and again in what's going to be a challenging climate over the next 18 months, if you've got that consumer buying that drink for its serve, once they've shared it, they're going to be looking for the next serve initiative they can share. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Tate from CGA. CGA are hospitality data analysts and bar and restaurant and hotel consultants. Their primary purpose is to crunch data and understand what the emerging and current trends are within the industry and then advise their clients to act appropriately. So in other words, Phil has his finger on the pulse of what is happening and what will happen in the future of our industry. On the episode, we talk about a lot of the knock-on effects from the pandemic, including uh, the changing nature of location and the fact that a lot of people have rediscovered their neighborhood bars and they're traveling less into inner cities. The fact that when people do travel into inner city, they're looking for a richer experience. It's much more of an event when they go out and they make the effort to go out into their city, travel into town. We talk a little bit about the no and low category and how that has been impacted by the pandemic. We look at various uses of technology that are coming about within the bar industry, including um, such th uh, things over in the, in the Far East. Um, we look at the way that technology is affecting consumption as well and how Instagram and social media have impacted what it is we expect from a bar and how we can go about promoting our experiences in bars. And we also touch on the venue polarization, the corrosion of uh, what Phil calls the middle ground venues, venues that are neither cheap nor are they luxury or specialist, and how really those venues need to think about acting now so that they can stay relevant in this turbulent and changing time of the hospitality climate. I think this is a really interesting episode. I think uh, as a uh, drinks industry person, I get asked a lot about consumer trends and what's going on. Uh, but really, it's Phil or the likes of Phil that have some great insight through the use of data into what's actually going on and how these changes may affect us going forward. So there's a lot of useful stuff here. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Phil Tate. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Right, we're going to kick off, as we always do, with some quickfire questions. Um, I'm hoping you're unprepared for this because we like to catch you off guard. Are you ready? I am ready indeed. Question one, which is worse, warm beer or warm white wine? Warm beer, definitely. Question two, when did you last drink a cocktail with an umbrella in it? On holiday two years ago in Crete, and I think I've got the photographic evidence as well, but I'm not going to share it. <laughs> Question three, do you remember when caramel was sometimes unsalted? Unfortunately, yes, I do, because yes, I am that old. <laughs> question four, if you were to go on Mastermind, what would be your specialist subject? Ooh, what a question. Um, the disappointments of being an Aston Villa fan. <laughs> question five is this, uh, do you have any irrational fears? Odd numbers, which is a strange phobia for someone who runs a data business. <laughs> Odd numbers. And that was question five as well. So I hope we didn't trigger you there. <laughs> question six, hotel bar or pub? Ooh, good pub. Good pub. 
Question seven, you have £1,000 to spend responsibly on alcoholic beverages. You could buy wine, you could buy luxury spirits, you could buy lots of beer. What do you go for? It doesn't have to be one of those three. It can be anything. I'd be going for the top shelf rum, definitely. Oh, tell you what, you, uh, you the answers to most of those questions I can really um, get a, get on board with. Um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from the umbrella cocktail one and the uh, the odd numbers, but you know. <laughs> we all have moments of shame. <laughs> right. So Phil, um, maybe let's start at the beginning. If you want to tell us a little bit about, your, about yourself and what. CGA, your company does? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Phil Tate. I'm the CEO of CGA. Um, I've been part of the business now for over 20 years. And as a company, we live, love and breathe the hospitality market. We do research from consumers for the brand owners and for outlets to help them understand the uniqueness that is the on-premise market. And it's all of our services are designed to help all of those companies try and make more money by giving the consumer the experience they need and seek when they come out into our marketplace. We, this is all we do. We, so we, we only focus on the hospitality market. We don't look at other sectors. I like to say that we're a hospitality business that does research rather than a research business that just happens to look at the hospitality marketplace. So how does a bar like use this research? How is it implemented? What are you and what form are you giving it to them and how is it then being actioned? Well, we give it to the bar owners in a couple of ways, really. So in response and in thanks for them potentially sharing their data with us, we'll be benchmarking their performance versus their local competitive set. Because sometimes you can look at your sales numbers and think you're doing well. And actually, then when you put it in context of the local market, we can be, be behind the curve, actually. And we help identify for them those new and emerging trends that are coming through. We give a significant amount of information to the drink, drinks brand owners and the suppliers, who our hope is they are going into these bars to help share that information with their customers and actually use it in a way to influence range, influence choice, but it all is about making sure it's what the consumer wants. And therefore, a big part of what we do is try and make sure that the right advice is being given to the bartenders and to the outlets to help them make more money. Okay, so you're getting data from the outlets that you're partnering with and then comparing that to like broader market data and then giving them like useful actions to be able to respond to how the market is changing. Yeah, exactly that. So we take data from the outlet itself, we take it from wholesalers, we take it from distributors, we take it from all routes to market. We compile it all together in a big black box and then weight it up to represent total market. So we can give this is what's happening at the a global level, this is what's happening at a country level, but then really drill down into this is what's happening within your area. Nice. And so is there such a thing as like surveys that take place in the hospitality sector? Do, is there anyone out there going out and surveying people like perhaps, um, you know, in politics, you might get consumer surveys and public surveys in order to be able to steer decision making. Does that happen as well? Or is all of the data really gathered around existing sales and, and marketing? No, it's a great it's a great show. We, we do the market measurement where we talk about share through those routes that we've spoken about. But we did over 300,000 consumer interviews last year, for example. And therefore, it's all about understanding what the people who use this marketplace want. We find with a lot of the broader consumer research, it's not focused on the unique individual that goes out into the on-premise. 
because 30% of consumers make up over 70% of visits to the on-premise. So it's only really by understanding what that, those consumers want, where they're going, why, what they're looking for when they're there, can you really help the bars and the brand owners understand what those consumers want? You know, I often wonder who is steering the trends. Is it is it bartenders that are you know coming out with original serves, or maybe brands that are kind of directing their brand messaging in a certain way, or is it the consumer that you know more generally the you know the mindset shifts towards demand for a certain type of product or a certain um you know maybe it's an ethical practice or flavor you know uh and then you know the bars and bartenders have to then and, and brands have to then react in order to provide the consumer with what they want and, and i mean there's a question there you know where do where do these trends come from who is actually steering it because it's it's got to be one or the other right it's not just this sort of happy magical meeting of of uh, you know two ideas one consumer one brand right where where is it coming from mostly i think there's a combination i'm probably going to give you quite a frustrating answer there because i think in some instances it's push and the industry itself has an idea and it has a, a new mpd initiative that they push out to the market and it catches fire and it catches fire with the brand uh, the bartender and it also catches fire with the consumer i think there's other initiatives where actually the consumer themselves have come up with um, something that they've seen on social media or something that they've tried in a unique serve. And as we'll come on to talk about, the consumers are so fickle right now. Actually, there's less consumers going out and wanting to have the same brands that they had last time, as more of them actually want to go out and be experimental. They want to try new things and that, that tr creates trends in itself. And as I mentioned, the bartender's almost the bridge between the two. I think where you get longevity in trends is where you almost get a meeting of all three of those into one instance. I think where that buy-in from the bartender and the consumer doesn't happen, the brand owner push can sometimes be short-lived. It can be a brand that survives 12 months but then falls away. But where it catches fire with the bartender, the consumer's got the pull for it as well. That's where you get those trends and those brands and those categories who last years. But it really does take mm. that unique coming together of all three elements yeah. to give it longevity. I mean, I guess sometimes as well, these trends carry over from other industries as well, right? Um, you know, maybe something that's going on in a in a neighboring industry, but not specifically our bar one. Like, I mean, shifts in, in trends in, in uh, restaurants, for example, which, of course, part of hospitality. But I know a lot of the cocktail trends that have come around over the past 20 years have been borrowed from stuff that might be going on in the kitchen. Um, and even sort of general, you know, approach to hospitality as well. You know, I'm thinking of things like sustainability that was happening more in restaurants originally than it was than, than the bars at first. And now obviously it's taken off across the whole hospitality sector. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. And I think MPD and tr trying to start new trends is, is hard yards. So obviously we measure performance in many multiple markets across the world. And we've seen that literally. Um, if you look at it, there's been over 3,000 new beer products introduced into the market over the last three years, but only 10% of them have actually cut through to make it above 10 million of sales. That's a lot of effort to go into actually trying to create momentum. And you're right, I think what we've got now is a consumer who is, forgive the pun, but thirsty for something different and look always seeking something new and therefore 
they'll, they'll quickly engage with something, but also quickly move on. Your average consumer has 10 drinks brands in their repertoire, but they churn a third of them every six months. Because to your point, they're looking for the newest serve, they're looking for something different. And therefore trying to build loyalty in the marketplace at the moment is incredibly difficult when you've got a consumer saying, every three out of every 10 brands, I'm gonna get rid of every six months. Is that one of the sort of key like goals, do you think, for a brand at the moment is to kind of like get that trust, retain loyalty so that they're not part of that churn figure? hundred uh, percent. And it's because almost you've got a leaky bucket of consumers otherwise, haven't you? Every, for every one you recruit, you're almost <laughs> losing two. And therefore, it's about getting that loyalty, getting that trust, getting that traction. And I think that's where the importance of that point you made on serve comes through. Because it, and it's, if you're starting to look at it with consumers, they are really trying to now almost make a statement themselves about what they drink, where and how. And if you look at it in terms of the role social media plays with that, sorry to go on almost a bit stats here, but a third of consumers say that if they don't document their night out on social media, it's like it never happened. And they have to post about it on social media or they feel like their friends don't believe them. One in four consumers are saying that if they don't post a picture of their drink on social media, it doesn't feel complete. And therefore, what you've got is this whole trend now of serve initiatives that are purely being done to get the consumer engaged. Half of consumers get their ideas of what to drink based on their friend's social media profile. And a third are choosing their drink purely based on what they think then will look great on social media. And what a pressure that puts on the bartender. Because if you're looking at the kind of consumer traction coming into the venue again and again in what's going to be a challenging climate over the next 18 months, if you've got that consumer buying that drink for its serve, once they've shared it, they're going to be looking for the next serve initiative they can share. And therefore, for bartenders, there's this constant pressure to innovate, to be bringing something different through on the serve. We're almost... It's, it's almost like we can't be as like Chesney Hawks. We can't have our one hit that we keep rolling out. We need to constantly um, bring something new through. And I apologize for the lack of recent examples on pop culture there and bringing back Chesney Hawks. Oh, brilliant, I love it. Um, this is so, I, mean, I can speak to this uh, because when, when I opened my first bar in London uh, back 12 years ago, Pearl, that was I've just, the iPhone hadn't been out long and Instagram, I think, would just kind of started. Twitter was really taking off. And so it was that moment in time where suddenly everyone was able to document what they were doing wherever they went. And it started off as text. It was always like, you know, such and such has checked into this place. That's how it used to work on Foursquare or Facebook. And then you, you gain the ability to include a photo. And not only that, but the photos were increasing in quality rapidly. Um, you know, you remember early smartphones, the photos were dreadful, even when they were color, they were really bad. But you know, the, with the with the introduction of the iPhone and various other um, phones around that time, though, certainly more than any other the iPhone, um, everyone was able to sort of start to create their own online diary biography of of their night out, and then curate this together into 
this impression of an experience that other people could then view and most importantly like and comment on and so it just sent people into an absolute frenzy and we were we by purely by accident really we create we when we opened this bar pearl we created a super engaging visually theatrical photogenic cocktail list with lots of interesting kind of visual components to it um and it was fun and you know just so happened that everyone wanted to be taking photos of their drinks at that time and so it made the bar very popular people wanted to come in and that hasn't really changed much by the sounds of things um since then you know we are this course it's moved on to video and everything's higher quality and you need text and you need audio as well and all that kind of stuff but like we are now effectively like documentarians of our own experiences right and by the sounds of things and i can certainly you know see see this from my my end as well this is really driving a lot of consumer trends in in the drinks industry 100 percent, loyalty is dead and experience is king and you've hit the nail on the head the consumers going out at the mm. moment and they're they're working hard for their money that we're into a bit of a cost of living crisis at the moment and they're going to choose where they go based upon what delivers them the experience they want and if it doesn't get but you can go be a loyal subscriber to a bar, go in 10 times, but once you have one bad experience, the modern consumer just doesn't forgive that because they've got so much choice of where else to go. Yeah. And they want to be updating that brand of self, documenting that new occasion, documenting that new serve. And if they don't get it, they're so unforgiving. And again, it puts pressure on the, the outlets themselves because we are dealing with high cost, we're dealing with staff issues, but we have to be perfect because the consumer doesn't care about our issues. They care about their night out. Do you, do you think on this sort of technology point where the experience is everything and being able to document that, do you think we might at some point see a rebound effect where you've just had our fill of it? It's like, I am sick of your Instagram stories and reels. Um, I, I, I don't want to see it anymore. I want to go and have a technology-free experience, old school, like they did back in the day, and just sit and enjoy my drink without the pressure, all the pressure of that. And actually, that will be a richer experience, which it, it probably will be a richer experience, um, like for the person in the moment. And it will, it will trump all those potential likes and comments that might have happened had it all been kind of technologized. I think that's a big question there because you're then tapping into broader society trends, aren't you? And therefore, there's a lot of people who are doing this because of what they see in broader society in terms of the trends there of brand of self, almost individual influencer, being the influencer within your social group. So I think within a particular age demographic, absolutely what you're talking about is there. People will choose the venue they go to almost not to have that. And therefore, but with some consumers, it is part of their driver. And we're seeing a third of consumers now actually researching the venues they go to before they even leave the house to make sure that venue can deliver on those kind of experiences. The path to purchase and the path to getting people into our outlets now is not like what it used to be in the past where it was what looks good from walking down the high street. It's what looks good when someone's researching it on a mobile phone because they want to ensure that there's going to be the experience, there's going to be the entertainment, and there's going to be that value for money. And the value for money doesn't mean cheap, but it means that value for experience. 
And therefore, we have to think of our marketing different now and make sure that our digital profile and our digital shop window is as impressive as possible because those third of consumers, they're only making their choices on venues for those outlets that can deliver it. So what you're saying as well, I think, is that people are going out less, but that they are being much more selective, targeted with where they go so that they're maximizing the experience and the sort of quality of the, I guess the quality of the offering, but also the quality of the potential images, videos, stuff that they can share, um, you know, whilst in that in that place. Yeah, we've seen obviously as cost of living started to take hold, and um, we do a lot of consumer research across 27 different countries. And across those markets, we've seen a third of consumers are set telling us they're going to start going out less frequently. The, the positive there is for our industry, it's the more infrequent users who are telling us that anyway. The more engaged user is telling us that what they're probably going to start to do is make more discerning drinks choices in terms of some of them being out in itself is going to be the treat. They're going to continue going out once a week, but they're going to have to almost stick to those entry level price points. And a third of consumers who are coming out on a weekly basis are telling us that they want to have high quality brands, but at that entry level price point. Two thirds of consumers are telling us, no, do you know what? I'm sacrificing elsewhere in my life right now. I'm not going to be able to have that holiday I wanted. I'm not going to be able to have that new car. So when I'm out on the weekend, I've earned this and I want the invitation Mm. to treat and I want to go straight to that top level price point. And with a lot of our outlets and a lot of our ranges, we go for that good, better, best pricing strategy. Well, what we're seeing in our numbers at the moment is people are either staying at the entry-level good position or going straight to best. But if they're going to make Mm. sure that that's how they're spending their money and going straight to best, you're right, that's where they're making sure the experience delivers for it. Because I've I've sacrificed for this. So let let me make sure I get my reward. Do you think then that we've been undergoing a period of premiumization, haven't we, across, you know, the, the hospitality sector? where there are, you know, some really, you can, you can drink great, quite expensive brands out in a number of locations that, you know, are, you know, pay to play, you you know, you really need to have some money to get in there. The opportunity to do that is so much broader now than it used to be. You know, there's towns near where I live in Cornwall here, which is very rural, of course, which would never have had, you know, a dedicated gin bar a few years back, um, but now do, and it's, it's high price point. Do you think then that this, these are now competing with what would otherwise previously have been kind of luxury experiences like a holiday and, and travel perhaps is, is actually suffering as a result of the premiumization in hospitality? Yes, definitely. We're, we're calling it the rise of the weekend millionaire. And it's a phrase we had back in 2008 because it's very similar to what we saw there. We, are, we have a certain amount of disposable mm. income. And that is being put under pressure by the the cost of living increases that everybody is familiar with. So therefore, people are making very discerning choices about how to spend that. We asked across all of those 27 countries, what is the one area you you plan to spend more money on over the next 12 months? And luckily, eating and drinking out was the number one answer across all of those 27 countries because people were basically saying, I missed out on birthdays, anniversaries, celebrations, 
And for me, I ha even with the current climate, I need to prioritise recapturing those. And we could see that there were sacrifices being made in clothing and on holidays abroad, and therefore domestic holidays were coming higher up the list as well. But again, the good news there is domestic holidays typically then involve on-premise and bars and, and restaurants. So that's good news. That's kind of what it, it is, basically, isn't it? Domestic holiday. I mean, I guess you might go hiking or something like that, but ultimately you're going to end up eating and drinking in restaurants and bars, aren't you? Yeah. Exactly. So we can see how people are planning to prioritise our sector, which is good, but we can also see the impact on people is probably the cost of loons to a higher degree than they expected. And for some people, they're having to cut back on that frequency. But there, then, treat was not going to be a holiday their treat will probably be a takeaway. But for those other people, we can see that we the, those engaged consumers, they still plan to prioritise our venues. But you, you mentioned premiumization. What we're now going to see is polarisation. People will either go right to the top or they'll stick there. And there's going to be this gap in between. And therefore, for our bartenders and for our venues, we need to be thinking how we make sure we range accordingly make sure we have that high quality entry level proposition that's still delivered in a great way that still makes people feel they've got their value for experience because we need to recognize the sacrifice for it. And then for the other consumers who want to trade up right to that top price point, let's encourage it because some want to. Let's remember how much we can intervene in their, their mindset by encouraging the trade up. But again, the experience has to deliver them otherwise they won't come back. So what you're saying is that these sort of middle ground venues that are neither good value, like cheaper product, like I guess maybe a pub, is that what you're talking about? Or, you know, that sort of place, or the, the, the more expensive premium venues. If you're not in one of those sort of categories, then you, you might need to think about changing your offering. Exactly. And it's thinking about your range within that. And it's thinking about, so it's, it's not just about your offering because sometimes you can get that um, broad amount of outlets in that middle ground and they potentially need to look at how they stretch their offer one way or the other but I also think it's about then how we range our products accordingly because I think one thing we are seeing is a change in location for consumers based upon a change of occasion so you mentioned pubs there and, and, and local bars one of the things we've seen is almost in all the multiple countries, with the increase of people working from home, the after drinks occasion has declined, but actually the growth of occasions in the suburbs has grown because the after work drink has been replaced by family night or has been replaced by date night in some instances. And people have rediscovered their local and they found it's probably a little bit better quality than what they expected, but they're still then seeking the kind of city centre execution they had before. And that's where some of those venues are left lacking. And then for the city centre venues, people, when they're making the effort to come into the city centre, their expectations are up here of what kind of experience they're going to want and have. And therefore, it means that for those venues, whereas in the past there was the, the transient footfall, there was people there for the after work drink, they're having to work really hard to get people into those venues and keep them there. So again, if you look at the operational pressures for the outlets at the moment, they need to be thinking about location, what occasions are we meeting within our consumers at the moment, because it's changing and we've never had to keep pace with that before. The pandemic has changed things. 
and have we got the right range and execution to meet the needs within that new consumer set? Mm. So a lot of pressure on these guys. Yeah, it's, it almost sounds like the, the geography has been shrunk. So where once, you know, you'd, you'd drink near your office in a city or whatever, um, now that place has sort of become a destination to go to and your local has sort of become what was your inner city haunt and that's that's now close to home and that's where you visit but you know to go and you know have a family meal or, or after work because you're working from home that kind of thing and so everything's kind of been shrunk down to this sort of smaller territory than it previously would have been where and, and as, as i said we, we discussed already the the, in, the international holiday has been sacrificed perhaps in all of this because you're you're gaining these experiences at these destination venues closer to you I love that expression. Yeah, it almost has been like people geography has shrunk and therefore to get them to come out of that sphere of influence almost, it has to be almost destinational and rewarding. And the venues that we can see in growth at the moment, and there are some brilliant venues that are going global at the moment, are the ones who bring it back to that E word, giving people the experience that they can't have elsewhere which they then tell their friends about, which creates that fear of missing out, which drives that footfall. Very much like what you were talking about with your venue Pearl in the past. It will be people who've been round the water cooler showing the photos. That's created that fear of missing out. It's created that inspiration. And people are going there for that kind of experience yeah. as a result. Where are we at with um, low and no alcohol? Because that was you know, really taking off pre-pandemic. A lot of, lot of money being invested in brands, a lot of marketing, lots of, um, not, like, you know, really a revolution in, in um, non-alcoholic cocktails, mocktails, whatever you want to call them, behind the bar, in bars opening up that were really just selling non-alcoholic cocktails. And, I mean, I get the sense that the pandemic certainly disrupted that a little bit. Um, once everyone was back home, you know, perhaps... I, I mean, I don't know, some people perhaps ended up drinking more at home than they would have done normally, and they were turning to alcoholic drinks rather than non-alcoholic. Um, it feels like that movement has, you know, not stalled, but perhaps, uh, you know, the gear change wasn't quite there. Is that your take on it? Or what, where, is there still growth in that category? Is there still legs in it as a bartender? Should I still be considering it? I, I think there's definitely legs in it, but as with everything in life, timing is everything. And I think the, the situation or context over the next 12 months means for no and low, it's probably going to have a reduced role in people's minds. As we've talked about, for some people, they're going to be going out less. For some people who still go out once a week, it might be that secondary occasion drops off. For some people, their once a week visit is gonna turn out to one big night out a fortnight. And the question we're posing to brand owners at the moment is if people are, sacrificing elsewhere in their life and they're going to have one big night out a week are they going to moderate to the same degree that they were planning to before probably not they're at they're looking for the maximum experience they can have on that time and what we saw with some of that no and low experiences it came through almost on people's secondary occasion rather than primary one and if that's dropping away it, uh, we predict probably a difficult 12 months for no and low but then it will make a comeback as people get to grips with the cost of living in 12 months time. It starts to recalibrate and people then come back to some of their normal behaviors. Yeah, that's interesting. And it makes perfect sense. You know, if if you're not going out as much, 
then you're going to maximize the experience on that that night out that you do do. And if you're someone who perhaps, you know, sometimes drinks alcohol and sometimes doesn't want to drink alcohol, it, on those sort of single nights out once a week, maximize everything, the chances are you're going to gravitate towards the alcohol options. I mean, I wonder about, about with regard to no and low, you know, there's been, I guess, there's, I think certainly with younger consumers, and you correct me if I'm wrong, there does seem to be a trend towards drinking less, you know, doing it slightly different to the generation above them. Um, and so the no alcohol option makes perfect sense. But I have often wondered, is it, you know, was the sort of success of it pre-pandemic partly down to it just being a new trend and an innovation rather than the fact that it had no alcohol in it? And almost a curiosity. Oh, I wonder what this gin with no alcohol tastes like. I wonder what this martini that has no alcohol in actually tastes like. People try it and they're like, oh, it's pretty pleasant. And, you know, they share it on their social media, as we've already discussed. And then it sort of snowballs from there. But because it's a trend, that might suggest to me that it doesn't have long term, you know, great prospects. It might be something, regardless of pandemic, that could would have just sort of you know, risen up, peaked at some point, then dropped off and then remained some sort of lower level plateau for the rest of time. You're absolutely right that Generation Z massively engage with no and low more. And when we're talking about to them about their priorities, you can see sustainability that you mentioned earlier is much higher versus the, the different consumer demographics. You can see that health is much higher versus those other demographics as well. So there's a natural pull for them with the no and low. I think in some instances, they were more caught up in the trend of MPD. And in some instances, we were interviewing consumers about why they'd made that serve. And they didn't even know it was a lower, no or low alternative they were drinking. They'd been pulled in by the serve or they'd been pulled in by mm -hmm. the design of the bottle. And I think for those particular Gen Z, there was and is a pull to no and low. But I think that is going to be outweighed at the moment by that we are out less frequently. So if they are going out less, they want to maximize that experience. Um, what about, I mean, we've touched a little bit on about, uh, social media and sharing and making sure that experience is, is visible um, to your, your network. Um, is there anything else in technology that we should be keeping an eye on going forward? I think you can see a lot of regional variants in this one. So I think one of them is around menus and menus in the outlet itself. So we can see in some areas, um, particularly the, the Asia Pacific regions, people want purely the digital menus. They want it to be as engaging as possible. Whereas in other areas such as Europe and US, you can see the pullback and post pandemic to no, actually, we want the hospitality elements of hospitality back. And therefore, we want to be interacting with servers and we want to be interacting with bartenders. I think that technology play around menus is quite a long and complicated one. If people are going to do it, they need to do it well. Because we've seen menus that are just almost the categories listed alphabetically, the brands listed alphabetically, quite generic in its delivery. And we've done eye tracking research that shows that if that's the case, the consumer will look at less than 30% of the menu. If it's engaging, they get up to 27% more people going through it. But if you know that that's the case, you need to make sure that that, 
branding, our merchandising and our pushing people to our profitable SKUs is at the top of the digital menu because they're not going to scroll forever. And for those menus and for those people who want hospitality back, we need to remember about the long-standing importance of the bartender. Over half of consumers can be influenced by the bartender even after they've decided what to drink. They go up, they speak to the expert, they want that interaction, they want that expert advice from the person that they trust who's going to deliver them this experience they've worked hard and are paying for. And almost that's part of what they're coming out for. I think it's remembering that and looking at how we maximise that, especially in this world of polarisation. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've uh, been, I've, we've obviously all been subjected to some of these digital menus over the last few years. And some of them are so well executed. And other ones you're like, this is like going through a website from the 1990s. Um, and as you say, you miss things. You just want to get through the process as quickly as possible and get any drink so that, you know, you can carry on with your your night and hopefully not ruin the whole experience. Um, but it does strike me that if it's done well, it could be extremely persuasive um, in whatever way the venue wants it to be. Like, you know, if you think about a website like Apple, you go there and you as soon as you hit the website, you're being marketed products in the most slick and sophisticated way. Um, you know, the way the video sort of interacts with text and as you scroll, it all moves around and everything. You know, if you could do that with a, a drink or a food menu on a on a smartphone, then, you know, you could, it could really enrich the experience. But obviously it takes quite a lot of money um, to be able to get there. And then I think on the other side of it is the data capture as well, right? The way in which people actually interact with your menu, what they order the time of day, the weather outside, um, you know, the servers who are on that day, um, maybe the number of other guests that are with you could be so valuable to a venue and, you know, to an industry as a whole to be able to, you know, really refine um, recommendations for what people should be drinking or eating, perhaps even knowing what people should order or will order before yeah. they even walk into the venue. Exactly. And I think a lot of what you just talked about, though, is the venue understanding the occasions that they cater for and therefore what kind of experience the consumer wants. So we've, we've seen examples of outlets putting in brilliant technology, mm. but their primary occasion is date night. And I don't know about you, but when I take my wife out, I don't want to be sat there typing my order into a phone. That's where for the particular experience and that particular occasion, I want the hospitality yeah. experience. I want to be served. Whereas we've seen a lack of technology in some of the venues that are doing that more high energy occasion where, yeah, absolutely going onto an app where it means I don't have to leave my seat. It doesn't mean I don't lose the conversation. We've seen particularly with the, the cocktail drinkers where a, a group of people go out and you go to the bar you order the cocktails, it takes so long to be served. When that individual comes back to the friendship group, they told us they feel lost for the next five to 10 minutes because the conversations move topic and they need to almost wait for it to happen again before they can rejoin the dialogue. Technology is the solution for that. We've seen some apps coming out where you're absolutely right. You almost go in and it says, last time you ordered this, would you like the same again? Or based on these likes, why don't you experiment with this? Mm. But those examples are few and far between. I think it will get better over time, but it again comes back to the venue. What experience are your consumers in there for? 
Because take away pain points, yes, but don't introduce new ones by compromising the experience they're yeah. looking for. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think about how algorithms on social media websites and um, and shopping websites are getting increasingly sophisticated at marketing to you, um, whether it's, you know, marketing a, a, a Facebook group or marketing a the next video you should watch or the next product you should buy. And, you know, the, the word algorithms come a bit become a bit dirty, hasn't it? For, for those very reasons. But um, when when that kind of technology finds its way into a bar recommendation engine, um, the I, I, you know there could be some kind of incredible results and I but I, I totally agree with what you're saying the venue needs to know itself and that actually seems to be the kind of the main point we're, we're getting to in this conversation in general a venue has to understand what it's trying to achieve who its customer is what the occasions are that it serves and then make sure that its product matches that and that they are ready for those guests when they come in yeah you've summed it up perfectly and it's keeping up with that changing nature of occasion as well, because I think a lot of venues we speak to, they think they know their consumer and they think they know their occasion, but in some ways they're almost stuck pre-pandemic. And it's yes, that was your occasion and that was your mm. consumer, but times have changed now and that's not your consumer and their expectations have either shifted to here or they've shifted to here and you, you need to keep up with that. Or as we're heading into the cost of living crisis, things are going to change again. And are you keeping pace with the changing nature of who your customer is going to be? And for me, that's where they need to be leaning on the brand owners who have this whole wealth of information to be actually coming through and going, okay, don't just give me your sales story about your brands and how they fit. Help me understand my current trading environment. Help me understand the quality I'm pitching to help me understand my local consumer because mm. that's what's going to help me still be here in two years and important that's what's going to help me be massively profitable over the two mm. years because what again we're going to go to what we saw yeah. in 2000 well that's exactly what we're doing now actually as it happens indeed, right? <laughs> indeed. Um, but it's what we saw in 2008 <laughs> the people who didn't evolve in that financial crisis unfortunately we lost some friends along the way but for the people who kept in touch with the changing yeah. occasions that came through, the new demands on luxury brands at different price points that tapped into these micro occasions that appeared, they were very successful because they gave the experience the consumer wanted on that occasion. Fantastic. Is there anything else we've missed? Anything, any other sort of trends that you see coming over the horizon that we need to keep an eye on or any, any other advice that you would give to to bar operators out there at the moment? I think the, the other one we'd probably talk about is activations. And that's where, again, we need to make sure it's the right kind of activation for our outlets. We see a lot of money from brand owners spent on creating these quite dynamic and cut through activations. And if we take an example, like we did, we took 20 examples of where brand owners had done great initiatives in the on-premise but across those 20, the average uplift for the brand was 6%. The average uplift for the category was four. But where we saw best practice and the outlets really starting to ask, well, is this the right activation for me? Maybe I'm gonna give this one a miss, but the next one I'll definitely do. The uplift was over 20%. 
And it comes back to, I think you just summed it up beautifully. It's about the outlet, knowing themselves, knowing the customer and knowing the occasions they play to. And when times are tough, the temptation can be to take all support on offer. Well, that sometimes can mean that the wrong activation is put in that puts off the consumer who's in there for their occasion. Or it might mean we miss out by not being demanding enough about the right activation on pretty substantial uplifts. And I think that also ties into range. And yes, be in touch with the trends. Yes, make sure that the you put in a range refresh in to keep up with this fickle consumer. But don't put everything in. We see a lot of venues when something catches fire that whether it's right for their consumer or not, they put it in. The average venue in the UK at the moment has over 23 gins on the bar. The average venue, 23 gins now. Rate of sale is average. Wow. That's insane, isn't it? And the rate of sale is maximised after six. Anything after that just confuses the consumer. So for some venues, a massive gin range is absolutely right because they're destination or venues, the consumers go in there for that purpose. But for the average bar or the average pub, as we referenced, having 20 gins is just confusing the consumer. It's taking up space and creating a dusty bottle that you're not yeah. getting through put on. Mm. Six, six is a good number, actually, I think. I'll take your word for that. You're the expert on that one. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know for just from my, my experience as a consumer, if there's more than six of something, unless that venue is a specialist in that particular product, I just get a little bit confused about what I want, you know? It's nice to have a slightly more curated range of things. Six main courses, six desserts, six desserts is probably a bit excessive actually. Six main courses, you know, six different beers in the pub, that, that's perfect for me. Um, anything more than that, the decision, it slows me down. It takes too long to decide. And what you'll do is you're actually, therefore, it's called the tyranny of choice. If there's too much choice, you actually default yeah. to the safest option. And in some instances, that means as the outlet that sells, we're missing out on the trade-up, we're missing out on the luxury price points because people are just confused. They go, I recognise that one, I'll go for that one. And it sometimes means then unless yeah. the bartender can intervene and go, how about this? We're missing out on that important money in the till from the trade-up. So I think it's a case of mm. here, of, well, I'd be encouraging venues to establish that partnership relationship with the brand owners, be a bit more demanding of it and say, okay, help me run my business more successfully based on the wealth of knowledge you have. Yeah. And I think this advice about sort of knowing thyself um, is, is so important. And I think for a lot of venues who perhaps are not really properly maximizing opportunity because they're not recognizing their strengths and what it is they're offering and who their consumer is i actually think probably deep down they do know the answer to those questions but perhaps that they're, they're, they're you know they're they're stuck in a way of trying to be something that they want to be rather than trying to acknowledge what they actually are bang on absolutely bang on we, when we interview a lot of the venues and we say who are your consumers they'll tell us and then you look around and really are you and it there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with knowing your consumer and delivering it phenomenally well. That's how we be successful. But in some instances, I think it's human nature to be aspirational yeah. around who we think we are or who we want to be marketing to. And sometimes that means we can miss the point in terms of delivering for that experience. And what makes us famous is actually the people who are already in the venue. So interesting. Um, 
Anything else before we wrap this up? Because I, there's so much rich content in here. And um, I tell you what, I don't say this very often, but I, I reckon I'm going to re-listen to this podcast a couple of times because I want to take down some notes myself from some of the stuff you say. I think it's so valuable um, for bartenders and bar operators to, to be able to implement all this advice. Is there anything else we should we should talk about? No, I think we've covered everything we, we plan to, and I think that's the, the key pillars to success in the current market. It's absolutely brilliant, Phil. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, I'll thank you on behalf of our listeners as well, because this is gold, I think. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you.